Listener Production. Well, what do I do? How can I help? Or how can I have this conversation without somebody shaming me? And I think that's the important thing is the shame that comes with being somebody going through this type of relationship is that we shame the victim that I could have let somebody do that to me. No, it's not a case if you let somebody do that to you. Somebody did it to you. Hi, I'm Jess Rowe, and this is the Jess Rowe Big Talk Show, a podcast that skips the small talk and goes big and deep. From love to loss and everything in between, I want to show you a different side of people who seem to have it all together in these raw and honest conversations about the things that matter. Shana Blaze is an award-winning interior and set designer. You'd know her too as one of the judges on The Block, which she starred on for 14 seasons, as well as her role in Selling Houses Australia. Shana is passionate about making a difference and has co-founded a family violence charity called Voice of Change because of her own experience with family violence. Now, I was unsure how to start a conversation with Shana about that. It is a difficult topic and we all need tools to help us know what to say. In this chat, Shana shares how to have these conversations and what to do if you see the signs and that you're worried about someone. So the conversation does touch on family violence. And if this brings up anything for you, help is there by contacting 1800RESPECT for a safe place to talk day and night. I listen to your podcast and I, I feel like I should count the amount of snorts you do. Aww. I just I absolutely wet my pants. It's so adorable. <laughs> oh, Shana, well, I tell you what, it is such a treat to be chatting with you. I feel like I know you. This is actually the first time we've met because I've seen you so much on the telly over the years doing the amazing stuff that you do. When did you know that you had a flair for design? Oh, wow. I think the funny thing about it is that I didn't actually know I had a flair for design. So when I was in high school and, you know, you do the, what do I do? And I wanted to be a fine artist. So that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a painter. I wanted to sculpt. And then we had to put a secondary one in case you didn't get into fine arts and it was interior design. And I honestly had never heard of interior design because I didn't actually know career people and creative people. We were just sort of the white collar people. Dad, you know, sort of worked in insurance and he was a fitter and turner and mum, you know, was a stay at home. There was no career people that I was around. And all I thought it was colour. And I I basically, I remember saying, well, who's going to pay me to tell them what colour to use? And I remember that going, whatever. And so, you know, just put those selections forward. And I didn't get into fine arts like you had your portfolio and it was terrible. It was so bad. And I got into interior design and I just I don't know what it is, I'm not doing it. And my dad said, well, you've got it, you're not staying home, that's what you have to do. And then within the first two days, we did so many great courses of, of hand drawing and history of design and the history of design, I just... I found my happy place and I just went, I love this. This is incredible. It takes you to another world. And I met one of my best friends on the very first day who is still my friend today. See, isn't that phenomenal how sometimes, you know, as you say, you hadn't even considered interior design. You Mm. didn't know what it meant. 
And then suddenly it opened up this whole world for you, which made you feel at home. And I think that's the thing is that, you know, the pressure of kids deciding who they are is really hard because you don't know who you are until, you know, you're in your late 20s, early 30s. And I remember my auntie, you know, because I, you know, had a really tough sort of 20s. I had two little babies and I I remember I was about 27, 28. And my auntie said, you know what? 30 is the best age. So I literally for three years, come on 30, come on 30, come on 30. And it wasn't like the next day you felt a different person, but I felt like I became me, who I was out of all the drama, away from, you know, the expectations, away from what you think you should be yourself. And finding that sort of comfort zone at 30 was, I think, the most rewarding time for me. When you say it was a tough time in your 20s, what do you mean? Um, I was a single mum for quite a while. I had a relationship that wasn't the best relationship in the world. It was also around the time of, uh, you know, a bit of a financial crash. I remember sort of in those late late 20s, there was times where, you know, we had, because everything was on lease and we had this big four-wheel drive, but I had no money to go buy margarine or butter for the kids' lunches. So it was that really sort of part where you have to be genius in what you do and if the heater blew up, well, you couldn't afford to replace it. So it's all those sort of parts where, again, what doesn't kill you make you stronger, but it's also those defining moments where if I can get through this, I can get through anything. So when you say you had to be genius, what sort of things did you do? That was where I, you know, I always... I sewed my curtains, I made the cushions, I did covers for the couches because, you know, we had the hand-me-down couches that were like 40 years old. So I did covers for that. I, My daughter, it was her birthday and she'd gone to her dad's house and I had no money. So for her birthday, I went, well, I can't afford a present, so I'll just do something in her room. So I went down to the riverside and I got these big willow branches and, um, you know, had my little kit and my hooks and my fishing line. So I strung that from the ceiling and then I had fairy lights in the garage. And so I put fairy lights in there. And then because I was, you know, I used to sew, I used to make clothes. I used to make half the kids' clothes. And so I created this beautiful sheer canopy that, and I moved the bed over to it and put her bed under it and became this fairy room. And so they were all things that I had. It didn't actually cost me a cent. So it was just, what can I do that will create an impact for zero of things that I already have? What can I get for free? And then create a memory for a lifetime. And even like when we did Country Home Rescue, when we did the room Narnia, putting those twigs on the on the wall and everything was actually taking us back to that time when things were tough as a family, but making it magical. I love that idea of the willows and fairy lights and that canopy, that place that takes you away out of your everyday, out of the grind, yeah. out of the, I suppose, the hardship and at times the pain. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, the kids only remember those magical moments, which I think is really important that you want to take them away from things that aren't good and, and things that you're struggling with. And and even just, you know, as a single parent, but also as a parent, you know, that we weren't going through some great times, just to create that escape for them in in a whole different way of bringing stories to life. And there's all those little moments that don't cost anything. You have to go into your imagination, but find things that the kids find magical and be part of their world. Listening to you talk about it, it reminds me of the incredible film that you've been the executive producer of, The Fort. Mm. And it's sort of the heart of that is this thought that the mum creates for her son 
as an escape from this really quite awful world of family violence that they're in. Mm. Was there a lot that you drew on from your personal experience then? I think the thing is, it's that came out of Jess's world. Jess is my son and then Carly's my daughter. So Jess wrote it and acted in it. So they took on moments from their upbringing of the magic. Once he decided he wanted to create a magical world, he went, well, so what are the magical things that I remember that took me to a different place? The fort isn't our story. The fort is a multitude of other stories, but it's that world of escapism that, you know, when we were going through tough times, that is ingrained in both my kids' minds and life. And and I'm really grateful for that because they're, they're very creative. They're both in the creative world. Carly's the editor. She was the editor of the movie. They co-directed the movie together. And so I think it's showing them that those tough times, no matter what they are, whatever envelope it comes in, is that if you can go to this other world of safety, things will be okay. And that message of hope, I think, is so essential, isn't it? Yeah, because I think the thing is that, you know, the problems that we were going through as a family, but also what the problems are in the movie, is that they're adult problems and they're problems. It's not like pretending that it's not happening, but I think, you know, the trauma, the ongoing trauma from kids seeing and being part of that environment should not be part of their childhood. You know, a child should have a childhood. And when you say things that you experienced as a family, so did you then experience family violence? Look, violence comes in many different ways. So we tend to have this umbrella of the physicality of violence, but we didn't have a great relationship. There was a lot of different types of coercive control and different types of family violence that comes in there. And I'm not here to have a go at at that person. That's not what this is about. But I think this is really about to show that anybody goes through this. Anybody has these sorts of times in their life. And, you know, it's it's about finding those tools together as a family of how you can get through and also tools of not making that trauma take over your life and being able to move forward. So then were you physically attacked or was it more about those insidious sort of senses of coercive control when you're not aware and it sort of slowly creeps up or was it both for you? Look, I had a couple of relationships that all of that was involved. Every part of, you know, what we call coercive control and family and domestic violence, I had part of that over a couple of relationships. And that was sort of part of that pattern that you have to break. And that's something I'm incredibly proud of in the fact that that was something that my kids will never be part of and never experience because we have learnt as a family and learnt our positives and our negatives and our strengths and our weaknesses. And when you have certain weaknesses, doesn't mean you're weak. And I think the weaknesses is where you learn your resilience, where you learn your strength, where you learn to be a warrior for somebody else and not just yourself. And that's what you're doing with this incredible film, The Fort. It's a very empowering, I mean, it's heartbreaking Mm. watching it. It begins a conversation and continues a conversation, which is so essential. And so did you find in terms of that kind of conversation that you made a choice with your kids to leave a relationship that was violent, that was very detrimental to you as a family unit? Absolutely. That was a very big decision. It was something that I, 
knew for a long time and I had to work out how to leave and what to do. And as I said, that was a couple of relationships and it wasn't because I went into the next relationship a broken person. It was just that it was a different type of uh, relationship. And I think the thing is that I never, ever saw myself as a victim because I was always strong. And I think that's the hard thing for people to understand. We go into that very victim blaming of going, well, why didn't you leave? Unless you're in that situation, you don't know the headspace, you don't know the manipulation, you don't know the consequences. And I think that's something that we've got to change that narrative is like, and I remember I had somebody say to me on, on radio only a couple of weeks ago going, so, well, you know, you're an intelligent person. Why didn't you just leave? And it really got me because it was one of those ones, well, shouldn't you be asking, why did he do that? Why did this person put you in this situation? That's the narrative that we have to change, is not blame the victim for the situation they're in. Because a lot of the time, no one, and I'm sure 99.5% of relationships do not start in an aggressive or manipulative relationship. It is coerced. It is groomed. It is quite full of love. Otherwise, you you know, you stay for love. And then once you know that side of the person, this other part comes in. And I think that's the really hard bit for people to understand because you want to nurture and, and you want to see the best of somebody. And that's where things start to go wrong. That is such a powerful point that you make about changing the narrative, about not asking mm. that question, well, why did you stay? All these things mm. happened. Why did that person do it? That is so much more the issue, isn't it? Yeah. And I think the thing is also with what we're trying to do with Voice of Change in the fact of stopping it before it starts. And a lot of that means is that, you know, we all say some of those things, like when people see the movie and, you know, Graham says some really manipulative, unlying things, but we're all, we all say a few things, but it's the pattern of behaviour. And, you know, there's a lot of men's behavioural programs of change. And a lot of them are saying that if I knew that when I was younger, if I knew that when I got into a relationship, we probably wouldn't be in this position because you get caught in this trap of what you think power and control is, also being dominated or dominating somebody because in the end it's control. It's abuse comes out of somebody wanting to control you, whether that comes through coercion, whether that comes through physical abuse, financial abuse, sexual abuse. And, you know, all those things are relevant and they happen now. And it's not even just about learning the red flags as a female, because even though it does happen to men, 90% of the perpetrators are men in one-on-one relationships as well. In the fact that what we have is that we have tools as a perpetrator to, to be able to pull your head in and go, wow, I really did a shitty thing there. I don't want to be this person. What can I do? And that's really the narrative we're also trying to say is that, you know what, you did a really bad thing. You did a shitty thing, but you can actually learn not to be that person. And do you want to be a better person? Most people want to be a better person. And I think we've got to actually be honest that men can change. Abusive behaviour can change. It is recognising it and changing the language of how they speak and how we react and how we speak to them as well. And I can hear and understand why you're so passionate about this. Voice for Change was an organisation, a charity that you have set up. And obviously, 
it's the most important thing that you're doing, isn't it? I think it's, you know, when you go, well, what's my legacy? What do I do? And I've been asked to be on a lot of charities and support them, which I do. And um, Safe Steps was the charity that I was doing the candlelight vigil for. But I think the thing is that there are so many incredible people doing incredible work to help the person in the most detrimental situations to be able to flee. But when we were making the movie, we saw how it affected people in the fact of like, well, what do I do? How can I help? Or how can I have this conversation without somebody shaming me? And I think that's the important thing is the shame that comes with being somebody going through this type of relationship is that we shame the victim that I could have let somebody do that to me. No, it's not a case if you let somebody do that to you. Somebody did it to you. And I think that's a really important narrative of what we're trying to do with Voice of Change is to give people some tools by delving. There's so many great tools out there and being able to package it with a project like The Fort. So the arts makes us talk. Like we would not have had this conversation if it wasn't for the movie. And there's all these great material that the government are putting out, great legislation, the police really are doing a great job, lawyers. But as a community and as a society, it's actually up to us. And I think we don't understand that. You know, what is the government doing? What is the police doing? Well, if you look at their policies and look what's happening out there, there's really good stuff out there. But as a community, we can't expect them to take responsibility for how we communicate to each other as a one-on-one. And what you're doing through the film, it's like a conduit to a discussion and difficult discussions. These are things, mm. they're hard to ask. You know, yeah. for me, it was hard to ask you, what have you experienced? Yeah. And so I think it's difficult when I think about, say, friends who are concerned about someone and how do they begin that conversation that they're worried about what's going on, that they might see some signs that, oh, that, that doesn't seem quite right. What would yeah. your advice be there? I think the thing is it, you've always got to look at doing it safely. There's an incredible app called be there. I'll give you the link so you can put it for listeners. But there's also the Mate Bystander program from the Griffith University and they've got this app. So they actually have those tools where you can go and look down and go, I think I've got a friend of this situation. What can I say and what can I do? Then there's also a section where I think I know somebody who's actually doing the wrong thing by their partner. What can I say to them? And so there's all these little conversations and tools. And that's why at the end of the movie, we put this discussion panel of conversations and little tools. And, you know, it's always that uncomfortable thing. And and this is something that I think we can all take away, even just from this conversation today, that when you're at a dinner party or when you're in a group conversation and somebody says something that's not quite right. They might say something derogatory about their partner or they might say something about a workmate that's really quite not comfortable. And you just reach out and and just go, oh, uh, what do you mean by that? And then they might explain it further. Yeah, but I, I don't understand that. So all of a sudden they have to tell you what that issue is and they're breaking it down. So you're not confrontational and most likely they'll say it a couple of times and then just like shut the conversation down. So all of a sudden everyone at the table's not embarrassed. So that's the big hard thing. We're embarrassed to say something to somebody because it'll embarrass them, but that person's doing the wrong thing. So that one person is affecting a group of say eight people at the table. So that shouldn't be, that we're giving that person power by everybody being silent. And I think the great saying is that silence is another form of abuse. And that's really important that if you let 
these people say these things, they have permission to keep saying it. As I listen to you talk in that way, it also makes me think about as women, often we have this pressure or feel that we have to be polite Mm. and to sort of smooth the water and to not make other people feel uncomfortable. But really, we need to make people feel uncomfortable, don't we? Well, I think that's the only way you get a reaction. And uncomfortable isn't about violence. Uncomfortable isn't about aggression and it's not confrontational. Uncomfortable is questioning somebody's actions when you know they're not right. And I think that's a really important thing. And I remember a really simple thing. And when I did Celebrity Apprentice, like Lord Sugar went on radio and, you know, he was speaking to Fitzy and Whipper and he said to them, oh, she's got a face like a slap fish. And they nervously laughed. They went, ha, 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 ha. And they're, oh, yeah, she does look a little bit, you know, her face gets a bit screwed up and all that sort of thing. As soon as they finished that, my messages were, I didn't even know it was on, but Whipper messaged me that, that I can't remember who it was, the female that was on there. She said, I'm so embarrassed. I didn't mean to say that. I feel so devastated. And I said to Whipper, I said, look, not a problem. You're sorry. But I said, the way that we can talk about this is get me on your radio show the next day. And so we got on the show next day and we talked about exactly this, is that we only know that uncomfortable, like, huh, yeah, because we don't know the tools, we don't have the muscle memory to say, you know what, I don't think you're right about that. And that's all we need to do is somebody says something derogatory in that way and it's not a sexual abuse, it's not a a financial abuse, but it's actually having a go at somebody because you don't like the way they look. And saying that I had a face like a slap fish and their reaction was laughter because they were so embarrassed and they didn't know what to say and all they needed in their little tool belt was to say, yeah, I don't think that's right. And then all of a sudden the person will go back. And that's all you need to do and that's all we need to know is have those little things of going, you know what? And it's not even a case of I don't agree with you. It's a case of like, no, no, I, 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 I don't think that's right. And then they have to then scurry and find their part. And then they also then dig themselves a deep hole. But if we go into that natural uncomfortable laughter, that's almost telling that person, oh, you're really funny. Keep going. Good on you, though, for being so strong in the sense of of calling that out and saying, no, that isn't okay. Because for many women, I think especially in the public eye, people do have a go and they think yeah. it's all right because they think, oh, come on, they're in the public eye, they get paid a lot, they just need to put up with it. And yeah. regardless of who you are and what you do, that isn't okay. It isn't. And I think that's, you know, you've brought up a really big point. You know, social media, when it first started, was absolutely divine. I have to say, I got onto Twitter in the first 12 months and it was so much fun. And it was quite a powerful tool. Whereas now, you know, we know that young kids have so much anxiety and they're putting themselves against people. And and social media has that unreal expectations of what your life should be. And I think the thing is that as a community, there's the pile-on mentality. And I block a lot of people and it's not because I don't want to hear real. The people that I block are just there to abuse people and you have no room in my space because they'll start abusing the people that stand up for me. I have no time for that. So I think the thing is that, you know, if we look at our social media accounts and look at what we allow to sneak through, 
that we have to take that little bit of responsibility. And it's not that social media should be just about niceties. And because sometimes I, I will answer people and question them and they go, oh, thanks for that. I, I didn't think of it that way. Okay, I'm sorry. And, and that's good. But sometimes a lot of people there, because in the end, they've had a bad day, they want to take it out on somebody else and it's completely faceless. So no matter what they think that, like what you were saying, you're in the public eye, you've got to cop it. Uh, no, I'm a designer. I happen to do what I do in the public eye. I didn't start what I do because I wanted to be famous. I don't see myself in any of that shape or form, but I'm bloody good at what I do and I love it and I'm grateful for this platform because the amount of people, and you would be the same, and I have to say this out loud because it's you know, the amount of people that have come up and cried and said, oh, my God, you've changed my life because you did this and this and this. And it might have been just because I changed the room of someone's house and they were able to do the same and go, I can now work it out and I can live in my house. So that's life-changing. That's what I'm so glad what social media and, and the platform that I have that I can do. Doesn't mean it allows somebody to abuse me, hunt me down and chase me around the streets like paparazzi. And you'd be exactly the same. And no, I'm not here for that. Yes, here, here, here. <laughs> you are a warrior woman and I adore it. I love hearing your power and I love hearing you be unapologetic about it. Mm. And as women, we need that. We need to hear voices like yours and we need to be able to say, no, that is enough. No more of this. No, you cannot comment on my appearance in this way. You can't mm -hmm. say this. But you know what? You had the last laugh because you won Celebrity Apprentice. Shana, for your charity Voice of Change, you have raised $326,000. Congratulations, you are the 2021 Celebrity Apprentice Champion. Well so over this series, you've won a total of over $475,000 for your charity. A record for the Australian Celebrity Apprentice. That's a good kickstart for a charity. Yeah. I just, this will save lives. So this is amazing. I did, and I was I shocked out of my socks. I really was. I didn't because there was a couple of secret donations that you know they said don't tell her. We don't you know we want that to go in. Look, and I think the thing is like I went in there only for the charity. We were in stage four lockdown in Melbourne, so I was an absolute mess. Went into quarantine and wasn't running my business, and hadn't seen my daughter for eight months because she lived in Sydney. Got out of quarantine, had a cuddle, we had a picnic. And then in four days, I was project manager and I literally, you know, I was a deer at headlights because I forgot, what do I do? What do I say? Like, I literally hadn't been in a room more than one person for like four months. And all of a sudden, I'm allowed to be free and I'm allowed to talk and I'm allowed to run things. And I just went, oh. So I felt like I grew through that process because it was such a strange time. And I have to say all those people that we did it with were all in that same position. We were all in the entertainment industry in some way and no one had any work. So everybody, one, was so grateful to be working, to doing something and the passion for everyone's charity. And that's the only thing that got me through, that it was for something else it wasn't for me. And you raised the most incredible amount of money for Voice for Change. Yeah. What a difference that that is making. I mean, that must give you such a sense of satisfaction. I think the incredible thing is like, you know, quite a few people have said, look, what, you know, what does it actually do? No, we're not actually at the pointy end of helping people flee their homes, but we're helping to 
educate and we're helping to, through the arts, have these conversations that no one wants to have. So these difficult conversations, and it's what you were saying before, if one person stands up and another person stands up, all of a sudden you have strength in numbers. And that's what's been missing, to be able to have these open conversations, to be able to stop the cycle of violence. And that's the biggest thing. And changing people's lives through that is so important because the numbers have not changed. They're not changing. And we have to do something different. So talking about it, banding together, having honest conversations with the right language is what we need to do. Which is what you're doing. Also too, you know, I think about what you do with your profession. You make people's homes beautiful, you know, their physical homes beautiful, but also what you're doing now too is making their sense of what they feel about home safe. That's such a lovely kind of combination, isn't it? And I think that was sort of like a little bit of irony for me at the beginning when it twigged that we were going to make this movie is that, you know, I do a home because I want people to be the best versions of themselves in their home. They want to feel the love. They want to walk in that door and just be enveloped in their own oasis. So that's what I love, what homes and your environment does to you. But the problem is that there's so many people that home is so unsafe. And you think of when we were in lockdown and COVID that people were trapped with their perpetrator and things got worse and they were shut down even more because they couldn't actually escape that world. So everyone should have that option of feeling safe in their home. And that's what home's meant to be. It's your safety. And not everyone feels that. So I do get that irony of what I do as a designer and now what I'm doing as a charity. And I think the synergy of that's so important. It is. Let's talk about what you do to make homes beautiful. And how much has that changed from when you were a young woman finding your people when you did interior design to now? Look, I think the essence of it was always there in the fact that, like, as a young girl, as a teenager, I was allowed to rip up the carpet. I was allowed to put tinfoil on my walls. Like, who puts tinfoil on the walls? But anyway, I put tinfoil on my walls. I love the sound of that. I hope you did that. How did you get it to stick? Good old (laughs) craft paste. Like craft phase, I did mum's drawer, I got the tin foil, and then the lady across the road had the most incredible book of 1910 posters. So it was all Art Nouveau. So I just sort of did posters on the wall and, and filled the gaps with tin foil. And but then, you know, there was no carpet, it was south facing. I had tin foil and I had metal Venetians. And I would lay in bed and like you could do my teeth chatter. <laughs> so from that very young age, I learnt that, oh God, if I'm gonna do it, I have to be comfortable in it. So it was all those sorts of things. And I experimented at home a lot while I was doing my course. So when I went into the commercial environment, it has to be 100 percent practical. Yes, it has to look good, but if it doesn't work and people hurt themselves walking around the store or, or, you know, it it has to project an image. It has to sell something. What is the dream? So I really felt like I was meant to be on this path because I was given those moments of not just about mistakes, but those learnings. So by the time when I was going into people's homes, I knew that I had to find out, well, what is it what you want? Like, what, what do you want the room to do? And I just felt that gets stronger and stronger and stronger. So by the time I started doing it on TV with selling houses, I knew it was all about problem solutions. So my, my main fast track is I can walk into a room and know instantly what's wrong with it before somebody opens their mouth. Wow. Can you give me some of that? I can put (laughs) outfits together. But I get into a room and I just go, oh, I don't know. Do I just get another cushion? (laughs) (laughs) 
I just, I don't know where to attack it, what to do. Uh, you know what? The biggest thing that I say to clients once we sort of work out the machinations of so many things is like, what do you want the room to give you? Because when you're putting a cushion in it, you're giving that to the room. So if you go, what do I want back from this room? Once I put stuff in there, what do I want to feel? And most of the time it's an emotion. So do I want this room to fill me with joy? With all the hats that you make, I guarantee that's what you want from the room. You want joy. (laughs) I do, and sparkle. It's just a shame my husband won't let me put sparkle on the walls. (laughs) Uh, Peter, get over yourself. You know what you can do because it's all about putting those things in and making it easy because, you know, people say, oh, my kid wants to paint their room black and they want to do purple. And I said, not a problem. It's a room you close the door on, so let them do what they want. One, they have to do it. They have to pay for the materials. And when they don't like it anymore, they have to do it. So all of a sudden it's a commitment. And that was something that my parents did for me. And that was out of, we didn't have any money. And one, I don't have time to help you. If you want it, you have to do it yourself. So that was out of necessity. But, you know, if you want sparkles on the walls, you can do another thing, which is really simple. You get a beautiful, like a curtain rod that could be like an off-white. You go get some sheer fabric that has sparkles all over it and you cover one section with these beautiful curtains of shears and you can take it down when you want to and all it is is a couple of hooks. And that way it's not intruding, it's not taking over, but it's those moments and then you just, all you need to then get a mirror ball and then you get the little light and you can get them for like, you know, $20, but turn that around, hit all the glitter and all of a sudden you have this happy glittery space that says, Jess. When you are next in town in Sydney, I really would love you to help me glitter up the room. (laughs) Will you do that for me? Absolutely, absolutely. (laughs) I want to wear one of your hats. Anytime. I think the taco hat would suit you enormously. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for the joy that you give so many of us, but even more so the voice that you are giving to so many women and families. The difference you are making is really quite extraordinary. You are something else. Oh, you are so special. And I think it's getting it out of the the closet, basically. And you you did that with people's mental health as well. And you've made such a difference. And I think that's the really important thing is that we've got to support each other for all the things that we're bringing out. And I think it makes you a better person. It makes you brighter, happier and shinier. And just walking out the door of your house saying, it's not a case of I don't care. It's just that I have important things to do and your negativity is not going to stick. Oh, yes. Mm. (laughs) So much love. You are just wonderful. Thank you You so much. You're too beautiful. Thank you. So to go and watch The Fort, which is a really incredible film, and to find out more about Voice of Change, a charity that's using the arts to amplify the voices of survivors of abuse, follow the link that's in our show notes. We also have a link there for Be There, which is an app for teenagers. It is well worth a look. For more big conversations like this, follow the Jessro Big Talk Show podcast. It means you'll never, ever miss an episode. And if there's someone in your life who you think will love this episode, why not share it with them? And if you love my chat with Shana, I think you'll really enjoy my chat with Leah Purcell. I kind of like myself, you know. It's taken a long, long time. But you go, this... I was going to say this kid, but that kid to become this woman 
she's 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 had a go and she's and she's doing all right and 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 she's she's a good person you know and and that's what's important i like her now the jess Rowe big talk show is hosted by me jess Rowe, executive producer nick mcclure she's a wonderful leopard lady audio imager nat marshall supervising producer sam kavanagh Until next time, remember to live big. Life is just too crazy and glorious to waste time on the stuff that doesn't matter.